2: This is a CBC podcast.
0: Dance, Anine, Boujou. Hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Films can be a reflection of the world we live in or a window into a new world. Jules Koustachin is a Cree filmmaker from Attawapiscat First Nation. Her new documentary explores how children of residential school survivors survive the survivor.
1: You know, I don't know if it'll ever be resolved, but I do know that my mom and I are now closer. Something happened, something shifted in our relationship, and I think that happens when you break the silence.
0: And a historical drama by Norwegian filmmaker Ulla Javer gives us a glimpse into the Sami struggle for land and
2: cultural survival it was actually the first revolt uh, from the Sami community against uh, the Norwegian state of not having any rights. I just knew in my heart that this was the story that cried out to be told.
0: Today, two new films that reflect and reveal pieces of Indigenous history and a new vision for our future generations.
1: Watch you, everyone. It's so nice to see you here today. Chimigwech for being here. So I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge our incredible crew, many of which are Indigenous, and we are going to follow protocol on this set. We will gather and pray at the beginning of each day for those children who never made it home, and for our survivor warriors who are still with us today. Wapake means
0: tomorrow... Wapake is the word for tomorrow in Cree and the name of the latest documentary film by Jules Kustachin. In the film, Jules explores the impact of residential schools by hearing the stories of survivors, including that of her own mother.
3: Then in the fall, that's when they sent me to the residence school. I was kind of upset with my mom. She never came down say goodbye. My dad came and hugged me and said goodbye, and I was just wondering why they sent me away. But they didn't have no choice to do that, you know? I didn't know anything about that for a long time. They were taking us in a boat and we were all underneath, it was so dark and cold and it was so scary, you just, the kids were just crying, we were just scared, we didn't know what's going to happen and then they just take all your clothes off and you know and I don't know why they were doing that, you just Like, he heard all the kids in the story that they cut their hair and put an awful smell in your hair, because they treat us like we're kind of diseased or something, you know? Just kids are just crying, don't know why they treat you like animals, (laughs) you know, that was a scary thing, I always remember that. (laughs)
0: Rita okimau Inininu is a residential school survivor. Her story is at the heart of the film Mois by Jules Kustachin, and it's at the heart of Jules' own story, because Rita is her mother. In her own words, that makes Jules a survivor of a survivor, because so much of her mother's story has influenced her own. It's a part of the legacy of residential schools, but one that is still finding its voice. Jules, welcome to Unreserved.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me, Jimmy Gwitch.
0: Now, the first five people to share their experiences in Waipakei is your mother. But before we hear um, her story and your connection to that, in this in this doc, you pull back the curtains, you know, uh, as they say, of the doc making process, as it were, and you show us things that happen behind the scenes. Can you describe what we see as the film opens?
1: Yeah, like um, when I was in school like I just finished my PhD a few years ago, my focus was on decolonizing documentary and film. And I thought it was necessary for people to see or the viewers to understand how much it takes for someone to share their truths on camera. And so I thought it was necessary that we see people kind of our guests settle into their seats. We see them seeing the set for the first time. I feel like a queen. How does that feel? And the cameras and people kind of bustling about and so forth. So I just thought that it was also necessary for people to hear what we do in the morning before we start our day, you know, in production, which like many of our crew were indigenous and reminding them that we had an on-set or on-call counselor as well, if they were triggered by some of the material. I find there's a lot of people that come into our communities and they expect us to share these harsh truths or share our trauma. And then they kind of leave us high and dry. So I really wanted to make sure that everybody was comfortable. And I know you can never really make anyone safe, but I think that we did a pretty good job in terms of, you know, having medicines and having an on-call on, on counselor, and then starting our day with prayer. I don't know that that's just the way that I do it. That's the way I was taught, so I felt that it was important to bring that into my methodology. So that's pretty much it. And I really think it's important. Like I've made some artistic choices within the within the film where the guests look into the barrel, they look into the lens. So when you're watching it in the theater, you're held accountable for your place in this story as well. So there was a lot of really important creative choices. I
0: think. You know, as well as, as that, you, you, you have very intimate conversations with, with people including including your mom, which is your first guest, Rita. What did you want us to know about what her life was like before residential schools?
1: Well, I thought it was really important to start her story there because she has such amazing happy memories
3: being up in Lake River in Ottawa First Nation. I used to lay on the ground, like in the in the grass, green green grass. I would look up in the sky. Looking at the clouds, you know, just pretending they're animals or describe what they are. And, uh, I was just so happy to be free. I love the birds, little birds. I used to just sit there and talk to them you know, or butterflies or something. it just the sound. And When you live near the river and you can see the water, it just makes you so relaxed. Different life. And I remember this. That's my happy time.
1: You know, living on the land, my grandparents didn't speak English. They were both hunter trappers. You know, she was born in a wigwam. That's pretty cool, you know. (laughs) So I just thought it was like really important for people to understand this life, this beautiful life we had. And it was um, disturbed, it was interrupted by colonization, by the church, by the Indian Act, by everything else that, you know, um, that has happened to us over the decades and centuries. So I feel that it was really important to kind of start there, you know, because she had her grandparents in her life. She had her parents, you know, she had her cousins everywhere. And then she was stolen and taken away to residential school and how her whole world changed in a matter of a day. She was like, what, five or six years old? I can't even imagine. I'm a mom. I can't imagine someone taking my kid away. Like, that's a baby, right? So I thought it was really important to start there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's a before, right, where you had the your family and you had your culture and you had all of these connections to land, to language, to uh, to love. But then there's the after. What happened to your mom?
1: Well, my mom was taken away at five or six, and then returned home at 16. She lost four brothers and sisters. So she's the lone survivor. Somewhere during that time, she became disassociated, angry. It it sounds harsh to say that or to say emotionally stunted. I mean, that sounds so mean, but it feels like she was stuck at that age of five or six, you know, when the trauma began, then she kind of was stuck at that age for a very long time. So I think as their children, we become their caretakers, like it's a huge weight. And I know people see my mom today, and they see her as this like really soft spoken, tiny little native woman, but no way, you know, she was a res girl, like that woman fought everybody. And she was always mad. <laughs> like, we were scared of my mom. Like, she was freaking scary growing up. And we weren't very close to her. Like, you know, your, par- your parents love you, right? Like, you know they love you. They just don't show it. And that's hard being their daughter. I know, you You know, you're the daughter of a survivor, too. I think there's more weight that we carry as their daughters. And we try to console them. We want them to feel better. But it's really hard to connect with someone who who's suppressing everything. Mm -hmm. You know, with your work, with my work, I feel like we're just kind of scratching the surface. Like we're starting to talk about our experiences being their children. No one really wants to go there yet, right? Because we don't matter. We matter. But in the dialogue, we're not there yet. But we need to be because I'm getting older. Like I'm in my 50s. I'm a parent. Maybe I'll be a grandparent soon. Like we need to have these discussions because Mm -hmm we've survived their survivor i know that sounds harsh but i think it's said because it's been difficult
0: mm mm-hmm. absolutely and i know exactly you know what you mean this idea that you have to be the caretaker surviving the survivor as as you say what was that like for you growing up having to take on that role you know you have you're being afraid of your mom at the same time but you want to protect your mom because you don't want to give this idea like i am being negative against residential school survivors right you don't want to you want to have that protected front for the world. So what was that like for you actually living through it, having to live it?
1: I remember hearing these harsh stories. I know some people have stories where their parents didn't say anything at all, and they were surprised to hear that, you know, they've survived this, you know, residential school system. But for me, I grew up hearing these stories. These were kind of like my bedtime stories. And I was a little kid, and, you know, you have this vivid imagination, and you're trying to console your mom, and she's telling you all these like, horrible, horrible things, and it doesn't make any sense, and then you're being forced to go to Catholic school, but then you're like, aren't these the people that hurt you? Like, it's such a confusing time. I I just remember not really making sense of anything my mom was saying, and I didn't understand why she was so mean, like, she was so cold, and then I would spend time with my grandmother, and she was so loving and affectionate, like, it made no sense to me, and our relationship was strained. That's the reality. And even today, I have a hard time showing affection with my mom. Like it feels forced. I mean, that's a whole other story about what happened to us when we were kids and stuff. and there was a lot of bad things that happened. But the trust was broken, and it takes a lot to mm. trust someone again, even though you take care of them and you love them and you're your they're your parent. But I think if they don't protect you or if they didn't protect you in the past, it's really hard to trust and be open. And show affection.
0: Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Let's let's dive a little bit deeper into that because I know what you mean, and it's hard to convey that to, to to listeners. So let's explore that for people. What what does that mean when you say it's hard to get that trust back, or it's even hard to build that trust with somebody who is a residential school survivor as a child of a residential school survivor?
1: I, I I'm not sure I, I I know how to articulate it yet because I think the first time my mom heard my story was at the premiere of the film. So I talked to my mom, you know, in my younger years, but she wasn't too receptive, you know, very defensive. And I think sometimes when people are, you know, still living and dealing with their trauma, it's hard for them to see outside of themselves. So when you try to tell them about what happened to you, or if you want them to take accountability, I know for my mother, she got very defensive. And then she made it about herself. Oh, I'm not a good mom. You don't like me, this or that. And then you feel bad. You know, there's a lot of shame. It's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't think about myself. It's all about you. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. You actually believe that and um at the premiere of the film oh my god the energy in that theater i don't even know if it was just my mom emanating it like it was so intense like you could hear people crying you could it was so intense in the theater and my mom's watching it for the first time my son was supposed to show it to her but he didn't so i was like oh my god so my mom's gonna hear like me (laughs) saying all these things but it was like this weight lifted off my shoulders it was like no mom you were there You know what happened. I'm not telling you something new, you know, like, I don't know. It was so much uh, emotion. And then I spent the day consoling my mom again for my pain and making her feel better. And I thought, no, like, mom, like this, (laughs) the whole point of this story is so that we could break the silence and we can heal. And, you know, we've had further discussion and stuff and she's apologized for the past and stuff but I still feel guilty. (laughs) And I know people will be critical of me or maybe they won't, I don't know. I was really scared of what the indigenous, not necessarily the non-indigenous community would think, more so what the indigenous community would think, especially people who are children of survivors. Because I think when people say the film is brave, yes. And I don't mean that in an egotistical way, Yes, it was probably the bravest thing I've ever friggin' done in my life and in a public forum. <laughs> so it was like so
3: hard.
0: But also terrifying, right? To to put that out there, right? And of course, for the audience, Wapakay recently screened at the Vancouver International Film Festival. There you are, intimate portrait of your family's experience. You're saying things for the first time publicly, very hard things to say, room full of people, everybody's crying. And you have to take care of your mom. What, what did you do with that? How did you resolve that with you and your mom? Or did you?
1: You know, I don't know if it'll ever be resolved, but I do know that my mom and I are now closer. Something happened, something shifted in our relationship. And I think that happens when you break the silence because I matter, too. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing. You know, we have this we matter movement, but we as their children matter, too, Because that's what intergenerational trauma is, is that we're carrying that weight. I just, I just want to be free from this. I just want, you know, I want my mom and I to be happy. I want us to have a relationship. And what's interesting is like, whenever I approach a documentary or a film, I have a centralized question. I always think of documentary as this visual essay. And you have a thesis question. And my question is, who am I without her trauma? Like, who's Jules? I don't know you know, because her trauma has been mine
0: since childhood. Ooh, I'm just going to breathe because there was a lot of breathing also in your documentary and I felt myself doing that just now. Just, <sighs> Wow. That's an important question, right? That Who are we as, as, as survivors of survivors, of children of survivors? Who are we without that trauma? Were you able to answer that question?
1: I don't know. I'm in my 50s now. I don't know. Hopefully I'll figure that out soon. Mm. I, I still feel very much obligated to take care of my mom. My relationship as it is, I feel like it's not going to change. But being a parent, and then having my son in the film and listening to him, like his testimony, or his statement or his story, I feel like he's removed himself or he's not he's not like how do I articulate this My mom and I are kind of weaved together right like we're one it feels like Mm -hmm. but he's a standalone individual like he knows his history he knows his culture but he doesn't carry the weight that I do so does that mean I you know the cycle is broken I don't know but he's living his life like I have four sons and they're doing well and You know, I've had, I I was a single mom with my two older boys and I have a set of twins who are 17 now or going off to university. So I have like two sets of kids. The older ones I raised, like I had them when I was early 20s. So I was just a kid myself. But when I see them soar, I feel like I've done something good.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if it's so much breaking the cycle as maybe creating new cycles, new pathways, new ways of being a mother, being a family. Um, and your son is, as you mentioned I- I- in this film, Asavak. Why did you want to include his story? Why do you think it was important to show that next generation change?
1: I think it was important to have a Sevak part of the story because he represents tomorrow. You know, he's my oldest son. I had him really young. He's kind of been with me on this journey for the last 30 years. And, you know, I just think he feels this responsibility to his younger siblings. You know what, what it's like with your kids. You see them and you talk and, you know, it's very casual and stuff like that. But rarely do we have an opportunity to have these hard conversations. So I think this film provided that opportunity for us to kind of go there. And he had to sit there and listen. He had to sit. <laughs> He couldn't leave. You know, we were both kind of had to be present. So it forced us to kind of have this challenging conversation. So I think in a way that was important.
0: It really felt like I was uh, watching sort of a family coming together or coming apart or coming together again, like a counseling session almost. And it was kind of awkward, I I have to be honest, sometimes watching these interactions. How did you feel making this doc and talking to your son about his anger or, or his reclamation of culture when he was hunting or, you know, your mother and how she was angry as you grew up? Was it difficult?
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, when you're making a film, you kind of, you know, you have your transcripts, you're, you know, you go through everything you want to you want to make sure the story moves forward, you pick out your themes, you do all this development, and then you go into pre production, production, and then post, I think, you know, I was very selective in terms of what I wanted to put in the film, I held back quite a bit, I censored myself quite a bit, not necessarily in the interview, but Uh, what you see in the final film for sure it was challenging but it didn't feel as harsh like when i when i was watching myself on the screen like when we were in the editing phase it didn't feel as harsh as when i was sitting in the audience with everybody at the premiere i was just like oh my god is my mom gonna still love me after this like that's what i felt in my heart i was like that's it she'd be so mad at me you know But, you know, when my mom and I, we went to another screening and we were standing there together and there was a residential school survivor who came up to us and she said that her children won't talk to her, you know, because she doesn't have a relationship with their kids because of, I guess, what transpired um, while she was raising them or in their childhood. So that hit my mom and I really hard. That's a whole other conversation too, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How do we begin to repair that kind of damage? I mean, at the end of the film, you say tomorrow means hope. It means we have a future. So what does tomorrow look like for for you, your son, and the generations to follow?
1: This is very specific. It's not going to be an overview, but my dream is to get a piece of land to bring my mom there so she could live the rest of her days out on the land, by the water, with her family, with her grandkids, so that I can one day be a grandmother and we can have um a safe place to return to. Like that's that's my goal. And I would bring others in. I would have like an um a residency. I would have artists come in. I would share this space with so many people. I would have horses. I would have chickens. <laughs> no, I would just I don't know. Maybe it's this land back thing. Like maybe it's like returning to the land or reclamation, being fluent in my language. Want my kids to be fluent in the language. I don't know. I just my dream, my hope is that we have that choice, that the choice is there. That's what hope is.
0: Mm, that's beautiful. Jules, thank you so much for your time today and this beautiful film that you've made.
1: Thank you so much. Butch.
0: Jules Kustachin is an award-winning filmmaker and the daughter of a residential school survivor. Her latest film is called Wapikay.
1: This is a very strange and frustrating story. To have your family member stolen... Murdered, then missing?
3: I'm Connie Walker, and this is Missing and Murdered, Finding Cleo. It's such a mystery, such an impossible task. Please, help us find her. Finding Cleo. If you'd like to hear more, you can find the full season wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is unreserved on CBC Radio One, Sirius XM, US Public Radio, and Native Voice One. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today, two filmmakers whose work was recently shown at the Vancouver International Film Festival.
3: är som Det
0: It's in a language you might not understand and set in a country you might not know a lot about and yet the story feels familiar. Esther is a young Sami woman, but she was raised Norwegian and encouraged by her family to conceal her Sami identity. Let the River Flow is a film by Ulla Yever. It follows Esther as she finds herself in the middle of demonstrations against a big dam development on her people's territory. It's a film about land, language, the lasting impact of residential schools, and ultimately about finding your way home. Ula, welcome to Unreserved.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. First of all, tell us about Esther. Who is she? Esther is a she's a young woman uh, who has just graduated from her um, like teaching school and she has started in her first work as uh, first job as a teacher in uh, in Alta, which is a really small community, a uh, small town in northern Norway. And she is hiding her Sámi identity because she doesn't want to be a target for for racism and discrimination uh, amongst her um, colleagues. And then these demonstrations against the building of a dam in the Alta River has begun, and um, she doesn't want to be a part of that because she wants to kind of keep her Sámi identity hidden. But her cousin is a part of the demonstration. He is a a Sámi activist. And uh, he drags her along to this uh, demonstration camp where there are both Norwegian and Sami activists demonstrating uh, against the dam. And then she kind of learns that it's not only about preventing a dam. It's also about the, the fight for Sami rights and it's connected to her story of of hiding who she is. And, and her journey kind of begins then of taking back her identity as a Sami.
0: Mm. And when you say she wanted to hide her Sami identity... Why is that? Who are the Sami in, in Norway?
2: Yeah, the Sami is uh, the indigenous people of uh, of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and also a part of Russia. Uh, and they have been living there for thousands of years. It's impossible to say who came like first. Uh, they have their own uh, language, their own culture, uh, especially the, the reindeer herding culture is, they're quite known of, for. And, uh, and also previous, uh, a lot of fishing um, uh, going on. For hundreds of years, the Sami has been uh, a victim of uh, discrimination, racism. Uh, they have not have had any rights. Their kids were sent to uh, residential schools where they were not uh, able to or not allowed to, to speak their, the mother tongue, even though that was the only language they could, uh, could speak. Norway wanted the whole Sami community to become Norwegians. So it was like this assimilation process or politics going on. Uh, with a goal to actually like uh, erase the whole Sami culture, and these things went on until um, the late 50s. Uh, this kind of this this policies who's had this this as a target, uh, but of course uh, the racism and the the culture uh, went went on for years after that. And uh, and the story of the film is in the late 70s, so it's kind of the the generation who also grew up with uh, racism and discrimination.
0: Mm-hmm. Very similar um, stories here on Turtle Island, Canada and, you know, the United States. How did you identify with Esther's story?
2: My father is from the same kind of territories as uh, as the the characters of the film. And uh, I was brought up totally as a Norwegian. And my parents, uh, they were also brought up as Norwegians, but a kind of three or four steps down the the family tree there are sami ancestors and i knew that if i started digging i would probably find out that also i have sami ancestors but it was a very different story for my part I, I i kind of had my sami awakening uh, as a process of making this film so i am more identified with Esther in, in other parts like uh, when i was younger and uh, trying to fit in and i think uh, if you just like uh, make those feelings even even bigger or, or put in a in a context where it's not only about like fitting in. It's more existential. I think that was was my part of kind of connecting with the the main character. And of course, I spoke to a lot of people and uh, who lived at that time, who were a part of the the activists and also had the same experiences as Esther goes through. Mm. So yeah,
0: that's interesting to me that you say that you only started to learn about your Sami. Uh, heritage when you were making this film, is that why you wanted to make this film to do that to, to do that connecting
2: No, actually not uh, the reason I, why I was so inspired by this story was mainly because there was this collective uh, mobilization and solidarity at that time i think in in all of the western world with uh, like the demonstrations like the sixty eighth generation uh, and the demonstration against Vietnam. And we had this case, uh, who was uh, the most important political case in Norway for for years. And that collective mobilisation and solidarity spirit uh, was the the thing that I thought we have something to learn today from. That That was the first reason that I wanted to do this film. And then when I started doing my research and found out that this was actually the first revolt uh, from the Sami community against the Norwegian state of not having any rights, I just knew in my heart that this was the story that cried to, cried out to be told because I didn't know uh, how important uh, the Alta case, which is like the, the frame story frame of the film, was for the Sami people and the, in the fight for Sami rights. And uh, that kind of also gave me the, the chance. And maybe also it was re- important that I had my own journey into finding out about my Sami roots.
0: Mm, certainly, an unexpected gift, though, I, and I do want to talk more about uh, the conflict itself, the Alta conflict. But where does your identity sit within you now that you've done this movie and the research?
2: Uh, I think it's uh, it's an ongoing process because it's it's very strange to find out so late in life. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm in the middle of the forties. it's not late, but kind of I'm a very grown up person and kind of. I'm trying I'm trying to l- to learn the language. Uh, I have a lot of Sami friends that I have uh, been really close to also during uh, the making of this film. So it's I think it's just like uh, I have kind of accepted that this is just I just have to to live with this being a process for the rest of my life. And uh, for me it's it's more like a gift to also have the the ability to learn another culture and somehow connecting with some ancestors that were kind of shoving away or like the 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 legacy of them was was not uh, visible in my in when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and now back to the film it's it is a damn development as you said to that acts as the catalyst for Esther to start asking questions about the the Sami way of life and and her own personal uh history with that. Uh, and it's based on real events. Can you tell us about the Alta conflict?
2: Yeah, there was this um uh, decision to to build a, a hydropower plant or or a dam in the alta river and the alta river is the it was at least then the northern europe's uh, richest salmon river and a very important livelihood for the sami people who were living uh, uh, along the the river and of course also the norwegian people and uh, at first it was the the plan was to build a dam that was so huge that it would uh, one of the third uh, biggest sami towns would be totally underwater, uh, and and this this town is also the most important kind of town for Esther. It's where she her mother comes from. Her her cousin comes from this town. It's called Marse. So that was the original plan, and that says a lot about how how the Norwegian state looked upon their their own indigenous people. That they were like willing to put a whole village under underwater. Then they, uh, the first demonstration uh, was against uh, that plan, and they, uh, they kind of found another place to build the dam. And this was in the late 70s. And the, then when the, the new plans were, were kind of coming in, the, in 1978, it was at first like an environmentalist uh, uh, demonstration, mostly, with uh, also uh, some activists participating in that. And then at one point, uh, seven Sami activists decided to go on a hunger strike in front of the Norwegian parliament. And that kind of changed the whole case from being at first only a a protest to save the river to becoming a a protest for Sami rights. Um, I don't know if I'm, I'm... I'm going to spoil how it ends, <laughs> because the, the film
0: is, <laughs> no spoilers, no spoilers. <laughs> yeah. And so, was that that a true event ever resolved, or is it ongoing?
2: Yeah, I would say I would say both. Um, well, I, I, I'm going to spoil it because it is not <laughs> it's not so important for the film. In, in Norway, everybody knows the story, so so the dam was eventually built, but. They ratified the ILO convention that they were going to protect their own indigenous people, so something good came out of it uh, anyway. So it's, in Norway we call it like a horse trade. Is that also an, an English expression? Yeah, so it was like a horse trade. So they kind of took the river, but they gave the Sami people uh, uh, protection and rights. Mm. And uh, and and now is there are similar conflicts going on. There's this huge conflict right now with uh, some windmills uh, that have been put illegally on Sámi land, Sámi reindeer herding land, And uh, it's been like in the court systems for for 20 years almost. And the last thing that happened uh, almost two years ago was that they were, uh, the Norwegian state lost in the Supreme Court, that these windmills are standing there illegally, but they're still standing there. And there was this huge protest this winter, maybe the biggest Sámi protest since the, the Alta case. It's called the Fusen case. Greta Thunberg showed up to give her support. So it was like this, this huge event. Uh, so, so it's it's kind of a continuum uh, from the Alta case to today and this case. But the the difference is that uh, now there's this new generation of really proud Sami people that have grown up uh, and uh, showing like their pride and their power.
0: Mm. There's, a, there's a line in the movie that is repeated often... Um, by Michal by uh, other members of of the Sami that say they didn't just take our land they didn't just take our reindeer they're not just taking the river they're taking our lives can you explain what that means?
2: yeah that means because uh, I think a lot of young Sami people especially those people who are growing up in the reindeer herding uh, families because it's a uh, kind of, I think you inherit, you inherit the the, the herd. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are so many examples of uh, people that have to sell out because there's a, a mining project or there are like uh, windmills or, or uh, roads that are going to be built. So you, you can't continue uh, what has been going on for generations. And this thing is maybe the only thing that these young people want to do. It's kind of, a, it's a part of their their identity of who they are. Uh, I think a lot of the language and culture are preserved by this uh, reindeer herding industry. And if you take uh, kind of the the hope for the future away from young people, they uh, they get depressed. And there's a lot of examples in, of this in the reindeer herding families, uh, uh, unfortunately about young, especially men committing suicides. Uh, which I also think is a, a common thing for indigenous people. Uh, the suicides rates are are quite high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what he mean that if you take away like my culture, my hopes for the future, you also take away my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other similarities that uh, was very strong in the film was this was this idea of residential school which may surprise people here in Canada that Norway had residential schools and sent their indigenous people there as well. How did that experience impact the way uh, her mother raised Esther?
2: Yeah, her mother also went to, to, to a residential school. She was a part of that generation, the last generation that, uh, that went to residential schools. Uh, and there was a lot of, uh, of bullying, of course, and if, if, uh, kind of, because there, was, there were both Norwegian and Sámi people at these schools but the the language the only language that they were allowed to speak was Norwegian so of course the, that gave the Norwegian kids they uh, they were kind of taught that these other people are lower than us they, they're not uh, worth as much as we are uh, so a lot of uh, young Sami kids uh, they were taken uh, taken away from their families went to these residential schools and were bullied uh, and, and treated differently than the Norwegian uh, kids and the uh, of course, it uh, it was a really brutal way of growing up and her mother, uh, Esther's mother, she doesn't want her own daughter to be brought it in up in the same way. So that I think, a very interesting thing, uh, like historical uh, thing in Norway is that after the Second World War, the whole Northern Norway was burnt down because when the Russians came to kind of attack the Germans uh, at the end of the war, the Germans... Uh, Withdraw and they burnt all the houses and buildings in northern Norway, which also meant that a lot of the Sami buildings and uh, livelihoods and uh, were also burnt. And after the war, uh, everybody was like um, given the opportunity to have a Norwegian house, and a lot of the people, the Sami people who had been uh, subject to racism and discrimination, kind of chose, I would say, chose like ironically because I don't think they actually had a choice. They kind of chose to become Norwegians. Mm. So you have this whole generation of, of young Sami people growing up after the Second World War who maybe didn't know they were Sami or, or kind of quietly were was a part of a kind of hiding who they really were mm. uh, in front of the other of the Norwegian communities. Mm-hmm.
0: And of course that, that disconnect from the knowledge of the colonization and the uh, what's the term Norwegianization of of their own people? Where was that something that um, Sami people grew up knowing about residential school and knowing about the
2: disconnection, or was it just sort of erased? Uh, I think you, you have examples of both. I think mm-hmm. for some people that they were kind of erased, and uh, and and there's still people today, like like myself, that are finding out who they are, and you have this whole grown-ups uh, becoming like Sami <laughs> so there's like this uh, this birth of Samis uh, within grown-ups uh, all over Norway now uh, which I think is a really beautiful thing yeah yeah <laughs> um,
0: the film Let the River Flow is both in Norwegian and in the Sami language which you indicated and separated by color in the translations which I really loved, why was that important for you to do?
2: Uh, I think it was two things. One thing that it was for an international audience, maybe it could be hard to kind of tell the difference when they spoke Sami and when they spoke Norwegian. So it was by uh, like just making it easier to understand that uh, now they are speaking Sami, now they're speaking Norwegian. And also as a part of Esther's process of kind of uh, taking back her Sami identity, language is a big part of that. And and when she chooses to speak Sami, you should as an audience know that this is an action from her character to, to choose to speak Sami.
0: Yeah, you have a really beautiful moment with Esther when in, early in the film, she has a Sami child in her classroom. She doesn't speak the language to him, even though that's the language that he speaks. And then later in the film, she speaks Sami to him. I really love that moment. It's really poignant because it speaks to this idea that you have to have pride in yourself to pass on that pride. Why did you want to have that little interaction between them? the sort of sub-story. Sub yeah,
2: it's a sub-story, but also an important story. Um, and I chose Esther to be a teacher and to work at a Norwegian school because I wanted her to work at a Norwegian institution and at an institution who has been a really big part of the Norwegianization of the Sami people. Uh, and being like put in that place, it gives her both, of course, a lot of pressure because she has to kind of fit in within the Norwegian uh, society and uh, and codes and rules and by having this sami child in her class she's given the opportunity to do something good which she doesn't take in the beginning uh, and then when she she kind of accepts who she is both in like the all the sorrow but also all the the positive things and choose to speak Sami to him in the end of the film. It also tells a lot about how she has evolved as a person, and uh, yeah, has become more brave and uh, and dares to 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 speak her own language to another person who also speaks Sami.
0: Um, now you take your films around the world. How often do you see parallels between the Sami and other indigenous nations? There were numerous ones in this film. The way Norwegians speak to the to the Sami people and about them. Um, you know, we had similar structures with the the teepee uh, shape structure that you mm-hmm. that you put up, and, and the clothing, and and the language, and the way they interact. Um, how often do you see those parallels as you travel?
2: Yeah quite often i would say it's it's both when they are like uh, indigenous people uh, but also uh, like in france with the algerians and like uh, they could like uh, definitely identify with some of the same conflicts and also uh, the film was also screened in australia this summer and they of course have a really brutal history of how they have treated the uh, aboriginals and it was quite interesting i think uh, i would like give you a lot of kudos of doing these parallels yourself because in Australia they were really engaged in the sami like history and they have they, they googled it and they wanted to learn more and then when i brought up that yeah you have kind of the same similar story with the aboriginal people it it went quiet <laughs> mm, yeah. uh with a lot of different interviews i had with the australian radio channels so um yeah and i i think it's the same thing in norway so i, I don't want to like uh, it off like the Australian people it's a shameful thing for Norway so it's difficult to speak about and I think it was the same thing about the the Australian people that is shameful, it's hard to speak about and it's easier to engage with other countries' conflicts uh, that are similar but hopefully this kind of films uh, or books or whatever you, you come, come across it maybe can open up also for like the, the story that are more closer to yourself
0: mm-hmm. Um, this film is uh, ultimately about, you know, finding your way back to culture, finding your way back home. And as you embark yourself on this journey of finding your own culture and finding your way back home, what do you hope this, this film gives people, gifts people? What do you hope that they take away
2: What I hope and what uh, because when I was doing research, there was a lot of uh, like facts and like Wikipedia articles and books uh, that were written. But I I didn't come across something that offered me the chance to identify with how it was to be a young Sami person going through these experiences. And that's the the goal of the film is to give the audience a chance to to see the world and live through the experience that Esther does as a young Sami, as an indigenous woman. And I think we need also to, to try to learn to see how things look from another perspective. And I think the, the minority perspective, the indigenous perspective is uh, important for us to, to bear that in mind, that the world looks different from other perspectives. And this film offers at least one perspective
0: you end the film very. Uh, some might say anticlimactic, but I I liked it. She ends up singing. How do you say it? Is it a yoika
2: Yoik. York, yeah. Yoiking. Yoik. Yoiking. Mm.
0: Do you have Do you have one? Do you have a yoik? Uh,
2: like my personal yoik. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was given one uh, uh, during the process of making this film, which is, was like uh, I'm really proud of that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> do you know it? Can you sing it for
2: us? Uh, uh, and I know it's not that well, but I'll put like... you on the spot, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's not. It's like you're you're not supposed to to yoke your own yoke. It's like oh, uh, like bra- It's like you uh, bragging of yourself. Oh, if you know okay, what I mean. Okay. It's like yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's up to others to kind of to yeah. to give you the yoke and and to perform it. Yeah.
0: Well, I thought they were really beautiful, and I'm glad you got one. Thanks. <laughs> and um, thank you so much for your time today and this beautiful film.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Rhiannon Johnson, Kim Kasher, Zoe Tennant, Laura Bone-Steubing, and Aisha Smith-Belgaba. Find us on our website at cbc.ca slash unreserved, or download the podcast on the CBC Listen app. I'm your favourite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 Territory. I will say